You're listening to Comedy Central. January 30th, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. tonight, former governor of New Jersey and the man who narrowly avoided becoming Donald Trump's vice president, Chris Christie is joining us, everybody. <laughs> also, also on tonight's show, we've got good news for anyone who's ever wanted to live inside their freezer. And once again, Trump and intelligence don't mix. But first, <laughs> let's catch up on today's headlines. The Fire Festival. It's the greatest music concert that never happened. You've probably watched the documentaries on Hulu or Netflix that show how this whole thing was the biggest scam from start to finish. And if you haven't watched them, please go and watch <laughs> Like, I'm begging you, you have to watch these. I'll, like, I'll do anything to get, I'll suck your <laughs> Go and watch them. Anyway, because many, because many supermodels convinced people to pay for the festival by saying they would be there, many are now asking if those models should also be held legally responsible. CBSnews.com reports Kendall Jenner and other top models can be subpoenaed after the fiasco over the fire festival. Several celebrities, including Hailey Bieber and Bella Haddad, were paid to appear in the promotional video for the 2017 music festivities in the Bahamas. But the event was canceled at the last moment, stranding hundreds of people. Well, this week, a judge signed off on subpoenas submitted by the trustee overseeing the festival's bankruptcy. The models could be forced to turn over the money they made. Okay, now look. I get why people are pissed. But I don't know if you can go after the models because some con artist hired them to make an ad for a festival that didn't happen, right? The only thing the models might be guilty of is being super hot, right? And even then, I don't know. Like, I'm gonna need to see a lot more evidence. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm an impartial guy, that's all I'm saying. The truth, the truth is, making something look better in an ad than it is in real life is, is just advertising. It's like ads for Spirit Airlines show planes not falling apart in the sky, but no one sues them. <laughs> Spirit Airlines, we're the fire festival of the sky. <laughs> Speaking of viral scams, the anti-vaccine movement. Over the past 20 years, there's been a growing number of people who believe that kids shouldn't get vaccinated because the vaccines are more dangerous than the diseases that they prevent. And clearly the diseases heard that and they were like, oh, it's on. Now to new fears about the growing measles outbreak, a state of emergency has been declared in Washington state as the number of confirmed cases climbs to 35. The measles is spectacularly contagious. One thing that's important, if you do think you have the measles, do not go to the emergency room. It could infect others. Just call your doctor first. And when you call your doctor, your doctor's gonna be like, oh, now you want my advice? <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. Take two D's and call me in the morning. D's, yeah, D's nuts. <laughs> Guys, I'm sorry. No one should be dying from a disease that was cured 60 years ago. It's 2019 and people are dying from measles? As a society, there are things we shouldn't die from anymore, okay? Measles is such a throwback disease. 
It's like being hit by a cannonball or getting run over by a chariot. That doesn't happen anymore if you don't live in Brooklyn, okay? <laughs> anyway, moving on to another health-related story. You know how sometimes you eat chicken nuggets and you think, nah, these taste like rubber? Well, there might be a reason for that. For the second time this week, there's a nationwide chicken nuggets recall to tell you about this morning. Tyson now recalling white meat panko chicken nuggets. They could be contaminated with bits of rubber. What? I don't even understand what that means. Because, <laughs> like, on the one hand, that's gross, but on the other hand, they're chicken nuggets. Like, the rubber is probably the most nutritious part, you know? <laughs> and this story actually has some huge implications. A chicken nugget recall could lead to a shortage, right, which could affect their number one customer. <laughs> and then, all of a sudden, Trump is invading Turkey. Like, turkeys are friends with chickens, folks. That's where they're hiding. <laughs> And finally, moving on to some major international news. The world's oldest desert is uh, home to one of the most listened to songs, Africa, by the band Toto. The artist Max Siedentopf has uh, set up a sound installation in the Namibian coastal desert to play on a loop in tribute to the soft rock classic. The installation is powered by solar batteries to keep Toto going for all eternity. Wow. This is amazing. Someone has invented an Apple battery that lasts for more than a year. Wow. <laughs> and look, this art installation sure sounds like a cool idea, but can you just imagine if you were lost in the desert? And then you hear music playing over the next sand dune, and you're like, oh my God, I'm saved. I'm saved. Somebody's there. And then you're like, oh no, it's just a phone playing music. And you're like, well, at least I can call for help. No, it's just an iPod. No! I bless the rage down and <laughs> What a cool song to die to. All right, let's move on to our top story. This week, there have been a ton of stories developing every day. Congress is trying to avert another shutdown. Britain is still on the brink of a disastrous Brexit, and Venezuela is inching closer to civil war. But nobody cares about any of that today because it's too damn cold. Cities across the Midwest are scrambling to protect people from this deadly polar vortex that is blasting the region with what is called the coldest air in decades. Plunging to as low as 70 degrees below zero in some cities. It's so cold outside, the U.S. Postal Service, which almost never stops delivering, suspending service in 11 Midwestern states because of safety concerns. We can't say it enough. Before it's all said and done, the wind chill here will feel like it's 50 to 60 degrees below. So if you I can stay inside, please do so. It's important. Yeah, we're all inside because we're not idiots. <laughs> Why are you outside, newsman? You know, seriously, I never get why reporters have to go into the bad weather to warn us about it. Like, just tell us from the studio. We believe you. <laughs> like, if you're sitting at the desk and you tell me it's cold, I'm not sitting at home like, is it though? Let me see your nipples. <laughs> they don't do this for any other type of story. They never like, earlier today, a man was shot in the leg and it looked like this. Bah! Ah! <laughs> but the point is, it is incredibly cold in America right now. Like, super cold. It's so cold that I looked in the mirror this morning and told myself to go back to Africa. We're talking <laughs> minus 70. Anytime you're in negative numbers, you know the thing's are out of hand. Because you realize when they made zero, they thought that would be the lowest. That's why it's zero. <laughs> if they thought there was gonna be anything lower, then they would have made that zero. <laughs> but somehow, we are way below zero. In fact, right now, America might be the coldest place on Earth and beyond.
People in the Dakotas and northern Minnesota saw wind chills plummet to minus 50. That's colder than the top of Mount Everest. Colder than Antarctica, Siberia, and Mount Everest. It will be colder in Chicago than it is in Antarctica or Alaska or the North Pole. Combined. Believe it or not, at times it's actually colder in some parts of the country than the surface of Mars. God damn. Colder than Mars? I guess, I guess that means it's really cold? Because I, I gotta be honest, I have no idea what the weather is on Mars. <laughs> if I had to guess, I'd be like, it's sandy? Is that a weather? Is that a thing? I don't understand why, why they do this on the news. Why are you using Mars as a reference point? None of us have been there. It's colder than Mars. Oh yeah, I spent summer on Mars. It was rather cold. <laughs> I don't know what's happening on other planets. I barely know about anything on Earth, and I live here. You could tell me Mars was named after Bruno Mars, and I'll be like, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, he's a popular guy. <laughs> like, the news is always explaining things with the most random comparisons. An asteroid is headed towards the Earth, and it weighs as much as 5,000 elephants. That's not helpful to anyone, okay? <laughs> no one knows how heavy an elephant is. Like, well, I mean, it's the Americans don't, because in Africa, we measure everything in elephants. It works for us. Like, <laughs> yeah, we'll just be like, as you can see, this is a very special property. 40 elephants big, huh? <laughs> and it has a baby hippo jacuzzi. And I know what you're thinking, this probably cost three tigers. No, there's no tigers in Africa, you racist. <laughs> yeah, and uh, if you don't understand what colder than Mars means, don't worry, because uh, maybe a few scientific demonstrations will help. This is a clear piece of glass, as you can see. I got some water in my hand. I'm gonna pour it on here. You see that? Look, it's gonna freeze instantly. You see it crystallizing right there. This cold is absolutely no joke. I'm gonna pour a little water on Barbie's hair. We'll give it a few seconds, and you'll see how fast her hair is going to freeze out here. One man actually turned this super frozen banana into a makeshift hammer. Okay, this... This, um, this didn't teach me how cold it is, but it did teach me how weird this guy is. His wife is probably like, honey, can you shovel the driveway? And he's like, I can't, I'm testing different fruits to see if they can be hammers. And after that, I'm building a birdhouse out of kiwis. <laughs> now, it goes without saying, most of us are miserable when it's this cold. But apparently, there's one group that is having a blast right now, the police. A sheriff's department in Minnesota using the cold to freeze a uniform in place so it stands on its own. Yeah, meanwhile, some police officers in central Illinois say they've caught the criminal responsible for this brutal weather. And they're not letting her go. Elsa, the snow queen from Frozen, was taken into custody. Police in Missouri asking criminals to take a break because it's too cold to fight crime. That's right. It's so cold that the police are sending out tweets just asking criminals to please not commit any crimes. Yeah. They're basically just asking the criminals to stop the crime for them, which is ridiculous. What's next? Are they just gonna ask people to arrest themselves? Just gonna be like, yeah, we're gonna mail you a self-arrest kit. It's got a Miranda rights, uh, handcuffs, some drugs to plant on yourself, and a body cam. But whatever you do, don't turn it on, okay? <laughs> it causes more trouble than it's worth. Just keep it off, trust me. But look, it is dangerous outside. It's super cold, so stay home if you can. Stay warm if you go out, and if you see someone in need, please help them out. This is one of the most vulnerable periods for anybody who does not have a place to stay. Because right now, there are millions of people in harm's way. And yet, even with that many people affected, President Trump has found a way to steal the spotlights. The president sees this, and it prompts him to tweet the following. In the beautiful Midwest, wind chill temperatures are reaching minus 60 degrees, the coldest ever recorded 
In coming days, expect it to get even colder. People can't last outside even for minutes. What the hell is going on with global whamming? Please come back fast. We need you. Ah, some brilliant analysis from French Fry the Science Guy. <laughs> yeah, according to the president, a cold snap is proof that global whamming isn't real. Like, I'm just like, Trump never stops. Even the coldest day of the year, the rest of us are having a brain freeze, and he's like, nothing to freeze here, firing on all cylinders. <laughs> I won't lie, I won't lie, let me tell you this. If I was ever trapped in the Alps, I would hope that I get trapped with Trump. I won't lie, because the cold clearly doesn't affect him. Like, I would probably be there, like, so cold, we've got to do something. And he'd be like, you're right, we gotta build a wall! Nancy Pelosi, crooked Hillary! And I'd be like, I'm gonna die. Of course you're gonna die, Trevor. MS-13 coming over the border. They're coming. But once again, the President of the United States is the leading voice of climate change denial. So to help us clear up these misconceptions, please welcome back our senior science correspondent, Ronnie Chang, everybody. Ronnie, help us out. Can you... Can you explain to people like President Trump how a cold snap doesn't mean there's no global warming? No, Trevor, I can't. I'm sick of this shit. Every time Trump sees an ice cube, he's all like, oh, well, where's the global warming? And then all his journalists have to come on TV and explain the difference between weather and climate, even though it's the simplest thing in the world. Everyone understands it. Kids get it. Dogs get it. Even my idiot boss gets it. The only person <laughs> who doesn't get it is President Frosty the Slow Man. R Ronnie, Ronnie, c come on. Maybe if we keep explaining it, Trump will eventually understand, you know? It's, it's the motto we have, no man-child left behind. <laughs> oh, oh, really, Trevor? Oh, this is it? This is, we're gonna change his mind this time? All right, okay, sure, fine. Okay, here we go again. Look, you see this? You see this line? It's global temperatures, okay? And it's going up. It's going up. If this was going down, you'd be right, and we'd be the dumbasses. But it's going up, so you're wrong, and you're the dumbass, okay? <laughs> Even if you flip the chart upside down, it's still going up. <laughs> up. So... Doesn't matter if it's sometimes cold in Cincinnati because the line keeps going the f up, <laughs> up. <laughs> Sorry, Trevor. I, I tried, but I just, I just can't do it anymore. Actually, I think you explained that pretty perfectly. Ronnie Chang, everybody, we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the Daily Show. There are. There are a lot of things that President Trump inherited from President Obama that we know he hates. The Affordable Care Act, the White House Vegetable Garden, <laughs> the container of cocoa butter Obama left behind in the bathroom. <laughs> He's like, this is terrible. Doesn't taste like cocoa or butter. <laughs> but what Trump probably hated the most was the intelligence officials who stayed on after Obama left. Do you think any intelligence agencies, U.S. intelligence agencies are out to get you? Well, certainly in the past, uh, it's been terrible. Uh, you look at Brennan, you look at Clapper, you look at Hayden, uh, you look at uh, Comey, uh, you look at McCabe, you look at Strzok and his lover, Lisa Page. It's so, it's so cute how Trump lists all the members of the deep state like they're Santa's reindeer, you know? <laughs> He's like, you know, Brennan and Clapper and Hayden and Comey, but do you recall the most famous of all? <laughs> He just loves everybody. 
Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. <laughs> but after cleaning house and firing his enemies, Trump's intelligence community is now led completely by people he handpicked. Although after yesterday, he might want to pick again. Tonight, top U.S. intelligence officials are openly contradicting President Trump's assessment of some of America's most dangerous adversaries. On Iran, U.S. intelligence agencies say Tehran is still not restarting its nuclear program. At the moment, technically, they're in compliance. President Trump today launching a remarkable series of attacks on his own top intelligence officials. He calls them, quote, extremely passive and naive about Iran, saying that the United States needs to be careful and suggesting, get this, perhaps intelligence should go back to school. Go back to school? The intelligence community doesn't need to go back to school. They're intelligence. <laughs> they know more than anyone. Like, you realize they know what's in the presidential daily briefing. Not even the president knows what's in that. <laughs> but I do understand why Trump's mad. Because yesterday, his own intelligence officials said that everything he believes is bullshit. A striking difference over one of the biggest issues looming over the White House, Russia. I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. We expect Russia will continue to wage its information war against democracies and to use social media to attempt to divide our societies. And on ISIS? We have won against ISIS. ISIS is, int is intent on resurging and still commands thousands of fighters in Iraq and Syria. Wow, that is awkward. Especially the part about ISIS, because when he claimed victory, Trump was basically spiking the football. And now the officials are like, no, we've reviewed the touchdown. We're calling it back. Also, we're worried about your head trauma because you've been saying some crazy shit. And the most painful contradiction of all might have been their differences over North Korea. And we have a good relationship with Kim Jong-un. No more rockets, no more missiles, no more nuclear testing. We currently assess that North Korea will seek to retain its WMD capabilities and is unlikely to completely give up its nuclear weapons and production capabilities. The regime is committed to developing a long-range nuclear armed missile that would pose a direct threat uh, to the United States. Oh, man, this is heartbreaking, guys. <laughs> Trump is running around on the streets saying he loves Kim and how much they're in love. <laughs> and now his intelligence team is telling the whole world that Kim's not that into him. <laughs> the only way this would be more humiliating is if Trump tried to hold Kim's hand in public and Kim just swatted it away. <laughs> Hashtag never forget. But look, but look, after yesterday, it's very clear there's two totally different views of the threats facing America today. And the American people, you have to make a choice. Are you gonna believe the heads of the CIA, the FBI, and the director of national intelligence? Or the guy who doesn't believe in global waming? <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is a former federal prosecutor and governor of New Jersey who ran for president and served as head of President Trump's transition team. His new book is called Let Me Finish, Trump, the Kushners, Bannon, New Jersey, and the power of in-your-face politics. Please welcome Governor Chris Christie. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show, sir. Happy to be back. Interesting. You were the third guest on my show. I was. 
you were also one of the only... In fact, you are the only Republican who supports Trump who's come back to the show post-Trump winning. Huge bravery. <laughs> so brave, Chris. So, so brave. brave. You also so got brave. nothing to lose, which helps. Well, you know, listen, it's... <laughs> 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 you know... Sometimes that's when you're bravest, Trevor. That you is know? when right. you're bravest, right? right? Never know. How do, you, how do you feel about these Republicans who seem to be pro-Trump or with him, and then when they're leaving, all of a sudden they're like, he is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> it seems like bravery does happen when the people leave. Uh, yeah, when, you, you know, you don't have to look at them every day or something, right. I guess. I guess that's probably it. Um, but, you know, they weren't brave in the beginning, you know, and, and, and what they're doing now is just... Faux bravery, so oh, that's the way it goes. Hurricane Sandy was, for you, one of the most seminal moments in your life and, and, and your career. Um, it's interesting because you, you went on this roller coaster ride of approval ratings. Hurricane Sandy, around that time, people said, Chris Christie could be the next president of the United States. I recall that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, a while later, like, this picture was one of those that made you one of the most hated men. Yeah in the United States when, like, a beach was shut down and there was, you know, a shutdown and, yeah. and you were out on the beach with your family. Mm -hmm. what, what was that like, just genuinely from your side as a human being, going from, like, everyone loving to you to feeling like everyone hates you? Try to make me cry. <laughs> oh, but no, no, but I'm no, serious. No, though. I mean, listen, seriously, like, that's, that's often what political life is like. You know, very rarely is there somebody in political life who does anything that's worth anything. Right. That remains popular all the way through. Because... If you're doing stuff that matters and stuff that needs to be done in your state or in this country, you're going to anger some people. You have to. Because unless you're just giving everything away, unless you're just saying yes to everybody, even if you don't mean it, you're going to make some people angry. Um, and so, you know, to me, like, it's never fun. Mm -hmm. Like, you always would much rather be 75% than 15%. Right. But in the end, does it really matter? Like, I, to me, what matters is what you did and what you accomplished. And, and so for me, that's what always mattered the most. No one likes it. Anybody who says they like being unpopular at times is just completely full of it. I didn't like it, but I also tried to have some perspective on it that that wasn't why I did it in the first place anyway, mm -hmm. was to be popular. And I used to tell my folks when we were at 75%, like we're not keeping this in the desk drawer and like just looking at it and go, look how pretty that 75% is. Let's go spend it. Let's go do the difficult things. That'll bring that down. And then you gotta live with it. You've written a book. Let yeah. me finish. Trump, the Kushners, Bannon, New Jersey, and the power of in-your-face politics. You take us through a little bit of how you began, a little bit of your life, the journey that made you into Chris Christie, as people know you. And then you really get into the meat of the presidential campaign, from you announcing, from you going into the race, all the way through to dropping out, and then the story with Donald Trump. Right. Let's start at the beginning of this journey, when yep. you were running and Donald Trump was running. You, you guys had been friends for a while. Yeah, at, at that time, we'd been friends for about 14 years. Did you think he stood a chance? No. Why not? I thought the whole thing was a joke at the time. I really did. I mean, you know, he had been talking about running for president for a long time. Right. I mean, going back 20 years. And so when he finally... He, look, he was getting older. And when he finally declared, I thought to myself, well, he's not going to stay in. Uh -huh. I mean, this is going to be something where he's going to do it for a little while, get into a debate or two experience it and then go, eh, I don't need this, I'm going to go away. So the whole premise of me, and not just me, but most of the other men and women that were up on that stage yes. was like, all right, he's getting some attention now, but he can't be serious about this. Is, is, is that why you guys didn't work as hard to attack him? It felt like everyone was leaving him and, and it was like, ah, forget him, he's fun. You know what it really was? Part of the problem was there were so many of us and he had so much 
uh, popularity in the polls early. Yes. That all the rest of it was just a little bit left for everybody. So you remember when people would go to attack him, like Rand Paul went to attack him with the goose, and he would look at him and go, you're a 2%, you're nothing, you're never yes. going to win, leave yes. me alone, right? Uh, or You shouldn't even be on the stage. You shouldn't be on the stage, who yes. are you, that kind of thing. And, and everybody saw that happening, and the media would react to that and play it over and over again. So it would be like wow. you know, getting, getting you know, sand kicked in your face, not just once, but like 100 times. And so people said, well, let's wait. The strategy of everybody was, let's wait till we're down to the last few, and then we'll go after him. Uh-huh. The, but, when, the, but when you saw that happening, when you, when you saw Trump becoming a viable candidate, it, it, you, the, the race changed quite a bit. Did it change your friendship? You know, interestingly, no, because we never, except for one instance that I detail in the book. Right. Um, which, what is that instance? Well, that instance was, I got the, the endorsement of the Manchester Union leader in yes. New Hampshire, which is the biggest newspaper in New Hampshire and the biggest endorsement to get in the primary. And he was really pissed. Right. And so he was in South Carolina when it happened. And, he, and then he gives some speech saying that, oh, you know, Bridgegate, he knew all about it. Right. I know he knew about it. He had breakfast with these people every morning. What were they talking about? It was all made up. Right, all made up. But and how how does that? How do you still stay friends with somebody who's accusing you of being part of something that is a crime? Well, part of what part of it is politics, right? I mean, people accuse people of everything in politics sometimes, and if you break every relationship you have with someone who says something bad about you, you're gonna be eating dinner alone in politics because it's a nasty game. But also, what happened was when he did that, then I went after him. So I was in Iowa yes. when he did that. That night, I went after him and I said, "Listen." Donald Trump said a whole bunch of lies about me today. Let me tell you the truth. We're, we don't need a wall. Uh-huh. We're never going to build a wall, even uh-huh. if he's elected. And if we ever did build a wall, I can guarantee you one thing. Mexico ain't ever going to pay for it. Right. And, you know, the crowd... Do you still believe all of those things? I, listen, I, it, it looks like I was right. Um, do you, no, but do you, still, do you still believe all of those things? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Right. Listen, that's what I ran on. I, I, don't, think, I don't think we need those things. Um, do we need some more security at the border? Of course we do. And I think everybody agrees on that. Right. Um, but do we need what he was talking about then, which was a concrete wall yes. from one end of the border to the other? <laughs> no. And, and I said that at the time. Right. And, and now he doesn't even say anymore yes. that that's now what we need. Now he says a fence. Right, a fence, a fence or, wall. or steel slats yes. or something like that. But, but the point like was stern when, when, no. right, when, when I went after him, the next morning, Corey Lewandowski, who was campaign manager at the time, called my campaign manager and said, listen, Donald's really um, sorry. He didn't mean to say any of that. He knows it was wrong. He knows that, that that wasn't true. And he wants a truce. And so I said to my guy, if he wants a truce, he calls me. And so he called me, and he admitted. He, never, he didn't mean it. He knew it wasn't true. He was just angry, and he apologized. So let me ask you this then. You, you get to that point yep. where you've, you've now... Okay, fine. And then he didn't say anything anymore, by right, the way. Right, right. There's, there's been a truce. But then you were the first prominent Republican to stand behind Donald Trump. Like, yeah. I'll never forget, there was this debate that we watched together where out of nowhere, it was like watching the Royal Rumble, we thought you would be going after him, and then you just kicked Marco Rubio in the jaw, basically took him out of the race, <laughs> Yeah. and you, you backed Trump. You, you well, backed that happened him. after it. Yeah. Right, but I'm saying, you backed him. Did you genuinely believe at that time that this man was the best man to be president of the United here's, States? Here's what I believed. I believed that he was gonna win that he was going to win the Republican nomination. He had come in second place but in Iowa. But did you believe that he deserved to win? Well, like... hold... No, I thought I deserved to win. Right? <laughs> 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 yeah. Touche. Right? All right. I mean, so, you know, because I get asked this question a lot for right. obvious reasons, and I go, let's be clear here. He was not my first choice for president. Right. I was. Right? So, but then I was trying to be practical. I looked at it and I said, none of the rest of these guys on the stage are going to beat him. 
They're just not. After he came in second place in Iowa, but one New Hampshire think, two but to one. But you were part of that prophecy. No, it was over by then. When he won New Hampshire, South Carolina by double digits. Yes. In in fields of 12, 13 people. It's over. It's just over. I knew it was over. And I sat there with my wife on the couch watching South Carolina, and I said, listen, we've been friends with this guy for 14 years. He's going to be the nominee. we got two choices. Either stay on the sidelines or support him and try to make him a better candidate. And I thought I could talk to him in ways that nobody else could talk to him uh -huh. because of the 14-year friendship. That, like, for instance, when he was doing all the stuff with Judge Curiel. Yes. I was the guy who got called in by his family to talk to him and say, you have to stop this. Right. It's not right. It's not right to go after this judge because he's a Mexican-American. Stop it. Put out a statement saying you're going to stop it and don't do it anymore. And I got called in to do that. And I did it. And I convinced him to put out a statement saying he wouldn't do it anymore. And he didn't do it anymore. So it's interesting. You say you wanted this man to be a better candidate and you thought you could help him. Yep. The book is really engaging. And it's, it's an interesting insight into the world that you have and Trump has and the people around him have, especially when it comes to the Kushners. Because the way you lay it out in the book, you yep. make it sound like... Jared Kushner has the power in the White House. I mean, well, you, he, you... He, is, he is the most powerful person in the White House next to the president. And you argue that you didn't get the job as vice president because of Jared Kushner. Sure. That's exactly why. Listen, the, the Wednesday night before the president, uh, the now president, um, announced his running mate on a Friday, I was in Washington, D.C. working on the transition. He called me that night on the phone. He said, are you ready? I said, am I ready for what? He goes, you know what I'm talking about. Are you ready? And I said, well, if you ask, I'm ready. And he said, well, talk to Mary Pat and make sure she's okay. I'm going to make my announcement tomorrow. Now, I don't know, Trevor. <laughs> that sounds to me like it's going to be me. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and then about two hours later, a high-level staff person on the campaign that was with him called me and said, he just called the family and told them that it's going to be you. And Jared and Ivanka have said they're getting on a plane at 6 a.m. to Indianapolis to come and talk to him and tell him he's got to go see Mike Pence again. So I don't know if it was Jared who made sure that I wasn't vice president, but then they went to see Pence, and then I didn't get it. Right. So so, 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 so let, let's, let's look at that part in the book, because this, yes. this is really fascinating, where you talk about this moment between the two of you. There's a lot of tension that's happening here. Jared comes to you at one point and basically says to you, to your face, he says, this is basically for what you have done to my father. Right. When because the, you, you were basically responsible for putting his father in jail. No, let's be clear. His father was responsible for going to jail. No, putting him in jail. The, the, he, what, he yes. did, what he did put him semantics. in jail. Semantics. Yes, I'm with No, you. not semantics. Really important. Right. Because when you say, when someone says a prosecutor put someone in jail, I did my job. Right. My job is when people break the law in my state and I have the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that they did, then they go to jail, whether they're the richest guy in the state, which is what he was at the time, mm -hmm. or whether they're a low-level drug dealer, um, you know, who committed a crime and right. killed somebody. They go to jail. So you think it was a you think it was him enacting his vendetta? He was he was saying you're not going to be vice president because of what you did to my dad. Right. And, and listen, that's not when he had to talk with me. It was earlier than that when Trump was making me the chairman of the transition, which was yes. in May. He came into Trump's office uninvited, and made the argument in front of me to his father-in-law that I couldn't be chairman of the transition because I was untrustworthy because I had pursued his father and put him in jail and that that was a family matter that should have been resolved by the rabbis and not by a prosecutor. Do you, do you think that you would have been... Yeah, I, I reacted the same way, by the way. <laughs> do, you, 
do do you think because if you if you asked it the other way you find like uh, Jared and them would have said um, oh no but you know Mike Pence was a better VP because Trump was so uh, you know just so caught up in all of his scandals, the pussy tape, et cetera. You wanted someone <laughs> next to him. Remember, they didn't was, know about that tape then. Right, but I'm saying <laughs> they wanted somebody who was the squeaky clean Bible guy, and they were like, oh, maybe Chris Christie's not the right VP to have next to Trump. Well, He's got I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not the Bible guy, but, but I'm from New Jersey. But, the, the, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, like, the point is, that should be the president's choice. Yes. And it shouldn't have to worry about me having, and, and Trump said it that day in the meeting, because he made me chairman of the transition. Right. And he said to Jared, you can't blame him for doing his job. He was just doing his job. And let me remind you what this guy did. I mean, besides tax evasion and, and violating federal election laws, when he found out we were investigating him and that his sister had been called to the grand jury because she was part of the owner of the company, he sent, he hired a prostitute to go after his sister's husband, seduce his sister's husband, videotape it, and then he took the videotape and sent it to his own sister on the day of her son's engagement party to intimidate her from going and speaking in front of the grand jury. Now, listen, I know some families have problems. <laughs> but I, and, and my family has been one that's like, you know, we, we, we talk and, we're, and we're, we'll battle with each other. And, right. right. I never hired a hooker, <laughs> right, uh, to go and videotape it and send it to my sister. I mean, so we're not talking about... Oh, you know, a parking ticket. Yes. And my point to Jared and to anybody who's ever asked me about this is, you know, when you do something like that, you have to be held accountable. And by the way, it wasn't a jury that found him guilty. He pled guilty. He admitted guilt to 18 counts. Right. So my so, point is, like, you've got to let... The, I understand it's his father. Nobody would want their father to go to jail. Uh -huh. I totally understand that. But at some point, as you get older, you've got to understand that, well... I'm an adult now. My father has to take responsibility for his own conduct, and I can't blame the guy who was just doing his job. Let's let's talk about the transition before I let you go. Yeah. Because this is one of the parts of the book that I genuinely was 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 engrossed by. You talk about how you spent a really long time compiling a giant dossier of like what your transition team would be, what Trump's transition should look like, yep. all of the people who would help him to become president. Yep. You then get kicked off the transition team. Yep. They throw away all of your work. Yeah. And as we saw, the transition was a disaster. Total. Right? Do you think that you could have helped Donald Trump to become presidential, the thing that people have been searching for from the very beginning? Well, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> but I think what, what we could have done was gotten him off to a much better start and, and put more good people around him. You know, there's that old saying, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Yes. Right? So if you have a bunch of people around you who are not good... Mm -hmm it significantly decreases your ability to be good. But let me ask you this. You, you say in the book, this was interesting, because in the book, there's a passage where you talk about Trump and you say he's not a good judge of character or he makes, or he makes um, rash decisions. You say he's impulsive. very impulsive. Yes, impulsive. he's impulsive. Yeah. And you say he surrounds himself with guys who are, you know, con men and people who are shady and people who are just not, you know, the right people to be some around. Of them are. Yeah, right, some right, of them right. Are. But then did you never not ask yourself that question, like, why does he want me around then? No, well, apparently he didn't. Um, but it's not like all the people around him are bad. And, and it's not like every decision, personnel decision he makes is bad. But the problem is that if you don't have the, the process set up to vet people, right? So right. they threw all that away. And so, you know, they were like vetting people on Google. I mean, and, and you can't do that because what happens is you miss things. 
And someone could sit across from you in a, in a meeting and impress you one day in, in an hour or uh -huh. two hours. And they may seem okay. And we've all met people like this. And then all of a sudden you find out other stuff about them. You do a little research. You go, oh, yeah, that guy's, that guy's not good. Right. And you move on. He threw that entire process away. Jared, Steve Bannon, Rick Dearborn, those three guys took 30 volumes. It's not just my work. We had 140 people, all volunteers, working from May till November yes. to put together 30 binders of stuff on, you know, so they wouldn't have had to write on, on, a, a, no, I'm with, on I'm everything, with you, on an everyone. executive order on the back right, of an envelope right, that right. was going to get thrown out of court on some kind of travel ban right. scam, right? right? I'm with you, but, but let, me, let me ask you this then. Let me ask you this. You, you, you're in a position where, as Chris Christie, you are friends with Donald Trump, the man who's about to become president of the United States, or has a good chance of becoming yeah. president of the United States. You are engaging with him in debate prep. You yep. talk about it in the book where you are out with this man and you're playing golf. And the reason you're playing golf is because you realize that he does not want to sit down and read anything. So you think you can trick him into learning things before the next debate, essentially. Well, no, not trick him, but, but I, what I began to understand and learn was that he learned much better verbally than he did in writing. So that if we sat and had a conversation, <laughs> it's true. And then, you know, some people, and over- But at this point, and you, at this point, you're like, this man should be the president of the United States? No, remember, hold on, remember, remember what I said. He was going to be the Republican nominee. He was going to be, right. if that was over. So in your head, you're, in your head, so, you're so, going, I have to try fix this, basically. That's, I want to make it better. And you thought he's going to be the nominee. Well, damn, man, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think I could. Right. Right away. Like this, I wasn't getting paid. Um, and and I, I, my point was, I love the country. This is going to be, this guy's going to have a 50-50 shot to be president. Right. So let's try to make him as good as we can make him. And let's see if we can make this work. And when you were with him on the golf course, you guys are playing, and between holes, you're we trying to brief... We weren't playing, because I don't play. Oh, so you're just trying to brief him between no, holes. No, what happened was we went to the golf course for lunch. Yes. And I said to him, listen, we need to talk about the health care reform right. stuff. So where do you want to do that? And he goes, well, have you ever seen the course? And I said, no, I've never seen this course. He goes, well, let's get in the golf cart, and we'll ride around, and we'll talk. And what happened, and that's an interesting part of the book, I started to try to talk to him about it. He didn't want to talk about it. What he wanted to talk about was that he was concerned that, like, this might really happen. I, I might win. And he said, <laughs> yeah. And he said to me, like, I'm concerned. This is <laughs> so says, crazy, right, man. Right. I'm sorry, man. And he says, well, listen, I, I, think if you, I think if you talk to President Obama, President Bush 43, President Clinton, that there, there comes a moment when, when you're running, you want to win. Right. But then there's a moment when it goes, whoa, I may actually win. Right. I personally never got to that moment. <laughs> but <clears throat> I wished I'd gotten to that moment, but I didn't. That's a different moment. And what he was saying to me that day was, he was talking to me about, I've run a family business. I've taken care of my kids. I'm worried about what's going to happen uh -huh. when I'm not there every day and they have to do this and they're going to do, are they going to do well or not? Is things going to work out? And we sat there talking for instead of talking about healthcare reform, we sat there for about an hour riding around this course talking about being a father. So when you when you and what that and, and what right. your responsibility is in public because he'd never been in public life before. So he's asking me, like, listen, you've been doing this for a long time. How do you make time to see your kids? How do you deal with the things they need from you when you've got this really important job? Uh -huh. It's not the kind of conversation that most people think Donald Trump would want to, would be having. And that's one of the reasons I put it in the book. It started off as a bad story. Like, he, he didn't want to talk about health care reform. Right. But in the end, we talked about something that, in a personal way, was, was meaningful. And, yes. and something that I think most people wouldn't think of him. And that's one of the reasons I put it in the book. Because 
we know all the stuff we know. Yes. All the tweeting and the stuff that you were talking about for the first half hour right. of the show. But that's something that most people wouldn't know and that because I was his friend and around then, I had a window into and I thought was important to share with the public so that they got more information about the guy who's sitting in the Oval Office. So then let me ask you this. Yeah. If he was to call you today and say, Chris, I need you. Remember that night that I called you? I should have followed through. I should have given you the ring. <laughs> will you... Or the rose or whatever. Will you come and join me at the White House? I need you in my administration. Would you say yes? He's offered me six different jobs since he's there, and I've said no to all of them. Why? Because there were no jobs that he offered me that I wanted. And Which job would you want? I told him way back, and I put this in the book, when I endorsed him a day or two later when we were campaigning around together, he said to me, hey, if I win this thing, what do you want? And I said, there's only two jobs that I'm interested in, vice president or attorney general. Uh -huh. That's it. I said, those are the two jobs that I think I'm most qualified for and the ones that would excite me the most and where I think I could do the most good. Uh -huh. I'm not looking for another title. I got plenty of titles. So I, let me ask I, you this. Would you, would, you, would you run for president again? You never say never. Would, you, mean, would you run against Trump? Do you think in you could 2020? Be, do you think you could beat him? No. In a primary in 2020? Probably, no, do you think any think Republican so. could beat him? I don't think so. Not now. Now, listen, politics is a dynamic thing, and you never know. Right. But based on what we see right now, no, I think you're the incumbent president. It's very hard to beat an incumbent president in a primary. Um, and, and he's still highly popular among Republican Party voters. I think the last poll I saw had him at like 80 or 81 percent approval right. among Republicans. So if 81 percent of the people like the guy you're running against, that only leaves 19 percent for you. Um, so that's not, a good, that's not a good game to play. So no. But I'm 56 years old. Would I think about doing it again? I, oh, of course I would think about it, but only if I saw a reasonable path to win. Like, I don't want to be one of these guys who runs just because, like, hey, why not? Let's run. Mm -hmm. It's too hard to do that, and it's too important. I didn't run in 2012, despite a lot of people asking me to do it, right. because I didn't feel like I was ready. I had an antiquated view of the presidency at that time, apparently. And now you're like, it's a free-for-all. Now I'm like, what? Yeah, kind of, I, I had 15 months as governor. I was overqualified. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... But at the time, I had 15 months as governor. I thought, like, I can't do this. Like, this is ridiculous. This is not right. And maybe politically, I had a good chance to, to, to win right. the nomination. I felt like in your heart, you got to believe that you can win and that if you win, that you're qualified to do the most important job in the world. That's the way I feel about it. So the answer to your question is, yeah, I'd think about it, but only if I thought that I had a path to win. And if I didn't, then you have no business going out and asking people for money and asking people for, the, for their vote. Right. They're just not right. I will say this. Um, we haven't always agreed on everything. We fight and argue about stuff, but I've always appreciated that you come on the show and that you talk. Listen, you're great. Thank and you And I love being coming here. on the show, and Thank I love you so what much. you do. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Let me finish. It's a fascinating book, and it's available now. Coming to Chris Christie, everybody. For real, man. Thank you. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.